in the pew in front of you or on your way out. There's little QR codes on the back. You could get any information, um, fill out any questions you have. Would love to grab coffee and connect and get to know you a little bit better, answer any questions you might have about uh, Redemption City Church, how to get plugged in and connected here. You can sign up for our Slack communication platform on here. So if you scan the QR code on our... Oh, oh, oh no, now I knocked your notes down. On the bulletin here, QR code for Slack. If you're, so if you're looking at what's going on, the announcements for today, we've got a couple things coming up. We have a family meeting coming up next Sunday night. And so whether you're a member or not, you could jump on that Zoom link. The only thing you need to do is either follow the link on the email or in our Slack channel. Uh, the other thing we have going up is an eat-up next week. So huge opportunity to eat together with a church family. If you're new, we really want you to come hang out with us, enjoy a meal together next Sunday. That would be phenomenal. But without further ado, I do want to hand it off to Zach here. He's going to share a little bit of vision for our global missions prayer. So, Zach, take it away, man. Good morning. in prayer with our needs. He invites us into this conversation. In Psalm 103, it says that he knows our frame and that he forgives our iniquity and that he heals our diseases. He satisfies us with good, that he redeems our lives from the pit, and that he works righteousness and justice for the oppressed and so much more in, in one Psalm alone. And Jesus himself said that he came to heal the sick. He came for those who had needs. So it's difficult in our culture to not fall into the trappings of, of self-sufficiency equating success. That if I can solve my problems and if I can answer life's questions, then I'm good. I'm okay. It's easy to forget our desperate need for Christ when in so many ways we are encouraged to make our own way, to solve our own problems. We don't come to Jesus like the bleeding woman we read about in Mark 5 who came in desperation who for 12 years bled unstopping in agony, and she spent all that she had to try and solve her her problem. And instead, the solutions they came up with only left her off for worse. If she had thought that she could still solve her problem on her own at that point, she wouldn't have come to Jesus. She wouldn't have reached out to touch his cloak to be healed. If you feel this lack in your life, you're not alone, and there's good news. First, We have this whole church here, and I'm sure there are many people here who would be happy to come alongside you, to encourage you, to support you, uh, to challenge you if you need challenged. And, And second, we want to invite you into an opportunity to experience this same overwhelming grace that the bleeding woman received when she met Jesus. On Sunday mornings, like I said, before the gathering, we meet at 9.30 to 9.50, either in the basement or outside, depending on the weather, and we take time to pray over this gathering and over global missions and what God is doing around the world. You don't need to be a professional Christian or practiced in the magical language of prayer, which is a joke because there is no magical language. It's just ordinary people bringing our neediness and our messes to God who is generously compassionate towards us. Many of you know who Tim Keller is. He's probably the second most quoted person behind C.S. Lewis in Mike's sermons. And recently, uh, he gave an interview, 
And during the interview, he was asked if he were to go back and do anything differently, uh, what would he do? And he said, absolutely, I should have prayed more, no question. And Tim Keller's a guy that we might look at his life and see the books he's written, the churches he's been a part of planting, the organizations he started, and think he looks pretty successful. But even him, in his older age, looks back and goes, I should have prayed more. So come join us on Sunday mornings. Make the sacrifice to be here because it is a sacrifice. It takes effort to get up a little earlier. If you have kids like we do, to get them to have 20 or 30 minutes less in the morning to get them ready to go is hard. But I promise that it's worth it. It's worth the effort. I promise you won't go away wishing that you had spent that time differently. Gospel according to Mark this week, which we're calling Amazed by Jesus. Um, And we actually know quite a bit about the human author of this book, uh, Mark, or John Mark, um, from uh, the book of Acts. Um, The author of this gospel account of Jesus wasn't one of Jesus' original disciples, but he was very active in the life of the early church. His mom's home was a meeting place for uh, the early church we see in Acts 12, and his cousin Barnabas was a prominent figure in that church, We are introduced to Mark uh, when Barnabas and Saul take him to Antioch to help with their ministry in that great city. And when Paul and Barnabas set out on their first missionary journey, they took Mark with them. But in one of the great uh, stories of the Bible, John Mark totally flakes out on this missionary journey. We don't know what was happening with him. No, if he saw these majestic snow-capped Taurus mountains and just freaked out and decided, man, I'm not going, I'm not hiking through there into the interior, whether it was the persecution, whether it's team dynamics. But this was a guy uh, that showed great promise in ministry. He knew all the movers and shakers in the early church, um, but he messed up in a major, major way. But John Mark has a wonderful redemptive story to his career. This guy who flaked out on Paul, and Paul's like, dude, I'm not taking this dude anywhere. He is flaky. He is not useful for me in ministry. This guy turns around and then ends up writing the first gospel account uh, uh, that we have in our uh, Bible. And we learn also uh, that later on in his career, he became very useful to the Apostle Paul. He was the assistant and kind of the executive secretary to the Apostle Peter, and he was a man that had an incredible opportunity uh, for a total turnaround in his ministry. So if you ever in your life have failed, if you have screwed up in major ways in your life and think, man, there is no more use for me in ministry, uh, John Mark should be your patron saint. He's a wonderful author of the New Testament. Uh, He's got a complicated, he's got a checkered past, but writes our first gospel account of Jesus, and we get to really enjoy it over the course of the next uh, couple of months. Of course, this gospel isn't about Mark. It's not the Mark's gospel. We often kind of call it in shorthand. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, we throw this term gospel around today rather uh, flippantly. We use the word quite a lot. There's gospel-centered everything and anything in our world today. So it's important that we understand it in light of its original context. Gospel was news of an event that changed the course of history. Uh, James Edwards, one of the commentators, tells us that in 9 BC, 
within a decade of Jesus' birth, the birth of Caesar Augustus, was hailed as euangelion, as gospel. This Roman emperor who brought unprecedented peace to the Roman world, the, the legendary Pax Romana, his birth was so significant to the course of world events that people were calling it gospel. People were calling it good news. This is life-changing, world-changing news of a very public character. Caesar's rule had so changed the course of history, right, in that time where people were slaughtering each other, you know, death and destruction, you know, it characterized the ancient world. The Romans brought an unprecedented level of peace, which became known as gospel, Um, The same could be said for decisive victories and a great battle that brought an end to wars and destruction and bloodshed. Um, That's the kind of thing we're talking about when we're talking about good news. Um, I I can't think of an event um, of this magnitude in my lifetime since the end of the Cold War, right, when the Berlin Wall came down, where, where there was a public just declaration of like, this is such good news to the world we're living in that the entire country just rose up in celebration. That also tells you a little bit about how old I am, that my, <laughs> that my <laughs> reference would be to the Cold War. Some of you probably weren't even like born yet in 1989 or whatever when that happened. But I'm looking back over my life and I can't think, I mean, we had like Iraq, there's a storm and we had lots of bad news, 9-11. I mean, we've had lots of terrible things happen over the last 20 or 30 years. Uh, but an event that would rise to the level of like gospel Maybe once in a generation, maybe in our grandparents' generation, the end of World War II, like victory in Europe, victory in the East of This is what we're talking about when we're talking about gospel, not just news of like, you know, oh, you can all go to heaven when you die and have a wonderful, you know, life pie in the sky and the sweet pie and by. Gospel is public news that changes the course of history. It's front page newspaper kind of news, and that's the kind of news we're talking about. Not just some kind of, you know, spiritual pick-me-up in the morning or a little, you know, dose of motivational speaking. Gospel is public news that changes the world. And that's why I am so excited to be starting the Gospel of Mark, because Mark begins with the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of uh, God. And this is exciting. It's the beginning. It's what Jesus did in his life, death, resurrection that ultimately changes uh, the world. And Mark doesn't unpack here in Mark 1 to, uh, Mark doesn't pause here to unpack the significance of the names of Jesus, but they're highly significant. And that significance becomes clear as this gospel unfolds here. And I want to read for you these opening texts here in Mark's uh, gospel that introduce it to us here. So Mark 1, 1 uh, through 13, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight, uh, make his path straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, 
After me comes one who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am worthy, I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven saying, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. And the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. And so this text this morning sets up the sermon that we are just launching into, this good news, this gospel that Mark has for us. In his prologue, Mark gives us three names of Jesus in verse 1. We see that it's the beginning of the gospel of Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God, and he doesn't really pause to unpack what those names mean. Jesus means God saves. Um, We also see that Christ means the King, the Messiah, the coming one, and the Son of God, of course, reflects Jesus' divinity. Mark doesn't stop. He doesn't pause. He doesn't unpack those names. He launches directly into his narrative, and we're going to spend the next months unpacking who Jesus is and what he means, that he's God our Savior, God our King, and ultimately the Son of God. And then in the prologue, there are three quick stories that he pulls out here of this text here. And we're going to look at each of those texts uh, this morning to show how they unpack who Jesus is, what he's like. We're going to see Jesus coming foretold in verses 2 through 8. We're going to see Jesus' identity confirmed in verses 9 through 11. And then Jesus' contesting completed in verse 12. And after this prologue, Mark lets Jesus' words and actions speak for themselves. He tells us what he thinks about Jesus, who he is, what he likes. And then Mark, as the gospel unfolds, he just lets Jesus speak for himself. So we're going to get to see the words of actions of Jesus in place. And Mark loves to record people's response to Jesus. All throughout the gospel, Mark reports that people were amazed, they were astonished, they marveled at Jesus. And so whether it's your first time studying the life of Jesus or the 500th, I'm praying um, that it would have the same impact it had on Jesus' first audience and continues to have today. And I want to give a few um, testimonies along the way of this series, really, of how people in our culture today are reacting to Jesus. Uh, I want to make the case that Jesus is just as amazing as he was in the first century. People are still having life-changing encounters with Jesus. And throughout this series, I'm hoping we'll be able to hear different stories of people that are encountering Jesus, amazed uh, by Jesus. And so I'd give a quick testimony up front uh, of someone that someone sent me earlier this year from the famed psychologist and author Jordan Peterson. Some of you guys know who Jordan Peterson is. He is a psychologist, wrote some books that have sold a lot of money. Uh, And I'm going to try and give uh, some stories, people from totally different backgrounds, so all over the the spectrum politically. But I wanted to start here because I loved um, Jordan Peterson's uh, testimony here. He was interviewed by an Orthodox Christian artist, uh, Jonathan Pajot, on his YouTube channel. And he said this about Jesus. I thought this was interesting testimony, hopefully sets up our... Series. He said the difference, and uh, C.S. Lewis pointed this out as well, between those mythological gods and Christ 
was that there's a historical representation of existence as well, Peterson said. So what you have in the figure of Christ is an actual person who lived plus a myth. And in some sense, Christ is the union of those two things. And so he was talking about all these mythological gods. And now people are like, yeah, Christ is just a basic myth, just like every other mythological figure. And Peterson's saying, but with Christ, you have both a historical person who actually lived and the myth combined, something totally different in history. Then he goes on to say, the problem is I probably believe that. But I'm amazed at my own belief, and I don't understand it. He continued, beginning to cry. He chokes up in the course of the interview, because I've seen sometimes the objective world and the narrative world touch. You know, that's union, that's synchronicity. So get the PhD-level words thrown out here. And I've seen that many times in my own life. And so in some sense, I believe it's undeniable. Peterson went on to explain that humans exist in what he calls the narrative sense of the world, which for him has been the world of morality that tells us how to act, and it is real, despite the fact that it's not the objective world. And this is, this is the, the money quote here at the end here. Uh, but the narrative objective world, uh, but the narrative and objective world, the author told Peugeot, and the, but the narrative and the objective world touch, the author told uh, Peugeot, and the ultimate expression that in principle is supposed to be Christ. And that seems to me to be oddly plausible, but I still don't know what to make of it, partly because it's too terrifying a reality to fully believe. I don't even know what would happen to you if you fully believed it. Isn't that interesting? Here's a psychologist, a very learned man, famous author and writer wrestling with the real historical person of Jesus, and he's saying, you know, I think I believe it. I think the evidence is undeniable as I look across the world and I see the historical reality of this Jesus and the power with which he still speaks to people today. But he's like, partly it's too terrifying a reality to fully believe. I don't even know what would happen to you if you fully believe. That's someone who's wrestling with the real living person of Jesus, not a domesticated version of Jesus that we can kind of tuck away in our back pocket and, you know, pray to him every now and then when we need, like, you know, to send up a prayer or something. But if we reckon with the real person of Jesus, what he's really like and all of his power and majesty and glory, right, we're going to have to reckon with somebody who is going to totally rearrange our lives. And it seems like Jordan Peterson is in a place where he's really wrestling with, what do I do with this vision of Jesus, and he's not the only one. Jesus has had this effect on countless individuals throughout the course of history. We're praying that it would have the same effect on us this morning as we are wrestling with who Jesus is. And so my aim for this morning's sermon and for this whole series is that we would be amazed by Jesus, that that same uh, response that we saw characterized throughout Mark's gospel would be uh, the response that we see as well. So let's pray as we dive in to our sermon after my uh, lengthy introduction this morning. We'll dive right in and uh, tackle this opening prologue in Mark's gospel. And so, Father, there are so many domesticated versions of Jesus out there in our culture, uh, versions of Jesus that maybe look more like our own ideologies, more like our own agendas, more like our own preferences than the real historical Jesus. And so would you open our eyes to the true Jesus and all of his glory and his grace and his majesty? Would you move us to worship during this series and a commitment to deeper discipleship to 
Jesus and the call that he's placed on our lives. So would you come uh, by the power of your spirit even this morning as we enter this series on the book of Mark. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So um, we're starting this morning here in Mark's prologue, 13 verses, and I'm going to try and dial it in here for you because Mark is moving fast, okay? We just got out of a series in Hebrew love poetry. It's slow, it's reflective, you're supposed to lose yourself in the poetry, ponder the meaning. Here in Mark, he is not messing around. He is just going straightforward. The pace is fast, it's quick, it's action-packed. The language is this immediately, the next thing happened. Right after this, Jesus, so so buckle your seatbelts. We're going to be moving a little faster pace here through the book of Mark because Mark wants to take us on a whirlwind tour through the life of Jesus and give us this picture capture it in short, pithy statements. And so I'm going to have to shorten my normally verbose style here to try and get down and lock it in to the speed that Mark has for us uh, today. And Mark opens his prologue with a prophecy from the Old Testament because Jesus' coming is part of a much larger story, right? Jesus' arrival on the scene is nothing short of the coming of the Lord. And like any great figure stepping onto the world stage, Jesus needs a proper introduction. And so both the prophets Isaiah and Malachi mention a messenger who would go ahead and prepare the way for the Lord and his eternal kingdom. And without further delay, Mark shows us John the baptizer who comes on the scene to introduce Jesus in all his power. John the Baptist is a fascinating character. His dress and diet are eccentric, to say the least, um, but it perfectly matches the description we have of prophets in the Old Testament, like Elijah in 2 Kings 8.1, wearing crazy camel hair clothes, eating all kinds of wild food, but bringing a disruptive prophetic word from the Lord. And so John calls his contemporaries to confess their sins and go through this symbolic washing or baptism for the forgiveness of sins. He's putting the call out to the entire nation of Israel, and people are flocking to him from all over Judea, Samaria, that whole area of people are coming out to hear what he has to say. And he also preaches of a coming one who's going to be infinitely more powerful than himself. Someone whose sandals he's not even worthy to untie. One who won't just baptize with water, but will baptize with the Holy Spirit. And so John is publicly <clears throat> calling people to repentance, but his purpose ultimately is to prepare the way for the one who will change people from the inside out. One who will baptize people with the Holy Spirit will change people's hearts and their entire lives. And this is what differentiates Jesus from every other religious teacher in the world. Right? Every other religious teacher teaches a message, here's the way you're to live your lives, right? and then calls people to follow it. Right? But John says Jesus is going to do something entirely different. He's going to pour out his Holy Spirit so we can actually want to do the things that God has called us to do. Uh, C.S. Lewis put it like this in... Um, a mere Christianity, and uh, Zach was right, right? The top quotes from Mike Bartlett. C.S. Lewis, a sermon, guilty as charged. But C.S. Lewis put it this way, put right over your head the idea that these are only fancy ways of saying that Christians are to read what Christ said and try to carry it out, as a man may read what Plato or Mark said and try to carry it out. They mean something much more than that. They mean that a real person 
Christ, here and now, in this very room where you are saying your prayers, is doing things to you. It's not a question of a good man who died 2,000 years ago. It is a living man, still as much a man as you, and still as much God as he was then, when he, he created the world, really coming down and interfering with your very self, killing the old nature in you and replacing it with the kind of self he has. At first, only for moments, then for longer periods, finally, if all goes well, turning you permanently into a different sort of thing, into a new little Christ, a being which in its own small way has the same life as God, which shares his power, joy, knowledge, and eternity. See, that's what John the Baptist is saying Jesus is going to do. He's not just going to give you a to-do list to follow, a checklist to follow. He is going to change your life. He's going to interfere with your heart, the ways in which you live and function and navigate, because he is not going to settle for anything less than turning you into a little Christ, a being which shares in his own joy, his own knowledge, his own eternity and power. And that's the kind of person Jesus is going to be. He's going to change hearts and lives from the inside out. And as John is preaching this message and baptizing people all over Judea and Jerusalem, Jesus himself shows up on the scene here, right into our interrupts, John's wonderful ministry of repentance and renewal going on in Israel. In verse 9, Mark tells us that Jesus was baptized by John. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth, of Galilee was baptized by John in the Jordan, and when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove and a voice from heaven saying, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. Why does the Savior, the King, the Son of God need to be baptized? Right? What's going on here? Right? Mark doesn't dwell on the fact that Jesus takes on our fallen humanity and sin In our place, he doesn't dwell on the paradox that the God who saves is submitting himself to a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. He doesn't dwell on the paradox that the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit is submitting himself to a water baptism. None of these realities capture Mark's attention. Mark is laser-focused on one thing, and that is Jesus' identity. Right When Jesus comes up out of the water, The Jordan, Mark tells us that immediately Jesus saw heaven being torn open, right? This is a striking scene. Here we get a rare window into the inner working of the Trinity, right? Heaven is torn open, the curtain is pulled aside, and we see what God is doing, right? We see God the Spirit descending on God the Son and God the Father speaking these words of blessing and approval over his Son, just as the Spirit hovered over the waters of creation in Genesis 1, here the Spirit is hovering over Jesus, empowering him for this fresh work of redemptive power that is going to go out into the world. And just as God the Father spoke his blessing over the goodness of creation back in Genesis 1, here God the Father is declaring that Jesus is his Son, the Son in whom he is well pleased. Right? This is God, the Trinity, at work to redeem and rescue his fallen world. And here, you know, Mark, just in two verses, just pulls back the curtain so that we can see Jesus in all of his glory as he is being affirmed by his Father. And notice that Jesus hasn't done anything yet in ministry. He's been living quietly, faithfully, a life of obscurity for the last 
30 years, and yet he enters into the ministry, the work that God has called him to, the mission that he has, uh, not with a chip on his shoulder, right? Not with something to prove, but in the fullness of the approval that he has in his father. This is a beautiful lesson for us, right, as power as followers of Jesus, right? Don't we so often live on a pass-fail basis, right? Wondering what God thinks about us, wondering if God is pleased with us, kind of riding the roller coaster of our own emotions, our own religious performance, our spiritual achievements for this week, going, man, read my Bible like three times this week, feeling pretty good. (laughs) Oh, totally screwed up and yelled at my kids this week, feeling pretty terrible. And yet, we see here Jesus living out of an entirely different narrative. Jesus living out of the narrative of the approval of his Father. And as we're swept up here into the dance of the Trinity, we too get a taste of God's great love and joy. Again, C.S. Lewis said it this way, the Son of God became a man to enable us to become sons and daughters of God. Right In Christ, we too hear whispers of that voice that we are God's sons and daughters, that God is well pleased with us because we are in Christ. And maybe this is the voice you need to hear today. Maybe this is, uh, as you walk into the church, feeling a little bit beat up by life out there in the world and the struggles and challenges and adversity, just to hear those incredible words that God is well pleased with us because he's well pleased with Jesus, those are words we all need to hear. Or maybe it stirs, maybe a longing in your own heart and your own soul to have that kind of approval, that kind of love, that kind of acceptance by the one person in the universe that knows you perfectly and loves you completely. So we've seen Jesus coming foretold, Jesus' identity, identity confirmed, and finally, Jesus testing completed in these final verses, verse 12 through 13. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Mark tells us that immediately the Spirit drove him out into the wilderness. It's fast. This gospel is moving, right? We, we got the prophecies. We get Jesus' baptism, and Jesus is out in the wilderness. He's being Tempted, right? After being empowered by the Spirit, affirmed by his Father, Jesus is thrust immediately into temptation, right? No easing his way into his work as the Messiah. He is driven out into the wilderness for 40 days, tempted by Satan and with the wild animals, right? We can't imagine a much more painful situation here, right? What's going on here? Why, why the temptation? You know, what is Mark doing with this temptation here in his gospel? What Mark is doing is taking us all the way back to the garden, right? If we go back to Genesis 3, we remember Adam and Eve are put in this beautiful garden paradise. They're surrounded all this lush foliage. You know, they have those wonderful animals hanging around with them that they've been named to name, and Satan slithers into that paradise, right, and tempts them in the garden to do life on their own, you know, to be little gods themselves. And what Mark is doing in a masterstroke of narrative and theology is showing us Jesus, he's no longer in a lush garden, he's no longer enjoying all the pleasures of paradise with his father, he's no longer enjoying all the animals frolicking around him here. No, Jesus has been put out in the wilderness, right? He's surrounded by wild animals and Satan comes to test him. And Jesus, right, where our first parents 
utterly failed at the test, succumbed to temptation, and plunged our world into the sin and tragedy which we see around us every day. Where Adam and Eve failed, Jesus triumphed, Jesus conquered, right? And because he conquered, right, we get to stand in his great victory. And so Mark is setting, right, Jesus' ministry in the context of God's much bigger cosmic story of redemption prophesied back in Genesis 3. So from the prophecies from Isaiah and Malachi, from his reference back all the way back to the garden, Mark is setting Jesus' gospel into the cosmic sweep of the entire story of scripture. He's setting Jesus' life in its context. And so we get to appreciate what Jesus is doing in light of what has already happened in the rest of the scriptures. And so when Jesus triumphed over sin, we, when we fail, we get to receive mercy and grace. Uh, that's the, the takeaway, I think, from this portion of our text this morning. The author of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 4, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet Without sin, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And that is very good news for those of us who struggle with sin, who struggle with temptation, or who struggle with all the realities of life in the fallen world. We have a high priest who has gone before us, who has triumphed in the midst of temptation. We stand again in his Victory. So Mark's prologue gives us an exalted vision of Jesus, who is Savior, he's King, he's the Son of God, the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit, the one who is empowered by the Spirit for his work, the one who's approved by his Father, and the one who triumphs over temptation. Which of these aspects, right, of Jesus' identity and mission will you need to remember Monday morning as you head out into life in a fallen world? Will you need to remember that Jesus is Savior, when you sin, will you need to remember that Jesus is king in a world that seems chaotic and out of control? Will you need to remember that Jesus is the Son of God when you need to cry out to your heavenly Father this week? Will you need to remember that Jesus overcame temptation when you fail and when you struggle and when you sin? That you can pray to your heavenly Father to lead us not into temptation because Jesus was tempted in our place, right? There's so many ways that we're going to get to see Jesus as this series unfolds, so many opportunities to behold his glory and remember who he is, uh, what he's like. So there are a lot of things we're going to need to keep front and center in our everyday consciousness about Jesus, Uh, but I want to close with one thing you shouldn't do with Jesus. And once again, just to complete my C.S. Lewis trajectory here, I want to close with one thing you shouldn't do with Jesus, Lewis says this, I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. This is the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he's a poached egg, or... Else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God 
or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you could spit on him and kill him as a demon, or you could fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. So my hope is that we would be a church that points people to Jesus as Savior, as King, and Son of God, and that this series, we would see more of his glories as we look, as we turn the diamond, the facet, and look at different elements of his ministry and his identity, that we would see more of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, Mark's prologue, uh, this lofty vision of who Jesus is and what he's like. Uh, We thank you that we see a vision of Jesus as that uh, long-anticipated one who would come and baptize with the Spirit that would change us from the inside out. That Jesus is the one who has the Father's full approval and acceptance and love. We thank you that Jesus triumphed over temptation in our sin. Um, God, that he is our hope as we fail and as we falter in our lives. We, We fix our eyes on Jesus and find hope for our lives. God, as we fix our eyes on Jesus throughout this series, God, would you stir our hearts to worship and praise? Would you help us to keep Jesus front and center in our uh, everyday consciousness as we're moving forward in our lives? God, would this series help rivet our gaze on Jesus? Uh, There'd be great hope and great grace and uh, great mercy released as we fix our eyes on him. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.